Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of changemakers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. Fei-Fei Li's life bridges two countries and two industries. She moved to the U.S. from China when she was 16 years old and just a few years later graduated from Princeton with an undergraduate degree in physics. Fast forward to today. Dr. Li is the co-director of Stanford's Human-Centered AI Institute. And on her sabbatical from Stanford in 2017, Dr. Li served as vice president at Google and as chief scientist of artificial intelligence at Google Cloud. She is, without a doubt, among the most brilliant people I've ever had the chance to interview. Her main research areas are in machine learning, computer vision, and cognitive and computational neuroscience. And if that's not enough, she's a really good person, harnessing her expertise and stature to be one of the nation's leading voices in advocating for diversity in STEM and AI. Now let's get to my conversation with Fei-Fei Li. I want to just start uh, by asking you to talk to us about human-centered AI or human-centered artificial intelligence. You, you founded Stanford's Human Center AI Institute in 2016, uh, and that's not a term I think a lot of people have heard of. In fact, people think artificial intelligence, they think machine learning, they think something that maybe is simulating humans, but not something that would be human-centered. So how do you think about that? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. First, a small uh, clarification. The institute is officially launched in 2019, in the spring of this year. Uh But the work, the groundwork has begun uh, in early 2017 at Stanford. So Uh um, a lot of colleagues are involved. But it's just precisely as you said, when you think about AI as a discipline and now as a widespread tool and application, it's about machines, it's about computers. And as an AI technologist for the past 20 years, most of my work is on the technical side. But around 2016 and 2017, our society woke up to this uh, maturing of this technology that is starting to impact real lives, such as the products we use on the internet, on our devices, uh, the potential applications in healthcare, in self-driving cars, in a lot of business decision-making. So as this is turning real and touching human lives, I began thinking about what is the meaning of this technology and more importantly, how we harness the future of this technology so it can serve humanity in a positive and benevolent way. And this is when we began to formulate in this new framework of AI, which we call hmm. human-centered AI. And it's centered around three principles, 
and and it's the three founding principles of Stanford's Human Centered AI Institute. But but I advocate mm-hmm. this to all approach uh, all approaches right. uh, or or efforts of AI. So the f- the first founding principle is centered around understanding, predicting, and guiding AI's human ah. and societal impact. It's fundamentally recognizing this is no longer a niche, only technical and computer science field. Its impact is so profound and prevalent, we need to turn this field into an interdisciplinary study and, and thought process to put just as much effort, resource um, into the understanding of the human impact as, you know, improving the technology itself. So in other words, that it's too important to leave or and too central to leave only to the computer scientists or to the AI specialists. Absolutely. I, as a AI technologist, I, I say that. <laughs> I totally agree with you. We need to welcome the, the economists, the policy thinkers, the, the legal scholars, the historians, the political scientists, the, the philosophers, all discipline to drawing and really work together to, to understand. Right. And some of these implications are huge, right? It touches on future of work. It touches on policy dealing with machine learning fairness. It touches on ethical codes. It yes. touches on geopolitics. So it it's very prevalent. So that's the first funding principle is recognizing and, and turning this field into an interdisciplinary field to really understand, predict, and guide human impact. Hmm. The second founding principle of AI is really an effort to change a verb for AI. Let me quiz you, Anne-Marie. What is the verb you think is associated with AI today in public mind? I would have said, for me, it's learning, but I'm not sure that's probably what the public thinks. Right. Actually, I'm getting at is what does the public think about the consequence Ah. Of AI, uh, in terms of a verb, not the um, definition yeah. of AI. Yes, r- right. So the consequences would be displacing. Yes. So the the I think displacing humans, displacing or replace. Right. So we really want to change that verb. We want to change that to augment and enhance. Aha. Uh-huh. Because this uh-huh. type. This technology has so much more potential to be collaborative, interactive, and ultimately augmentative to human capabilities instead of replacing or displacing. So this is where at Stanford or my other efforts involving AI, we're really promoting and investing in research and technology focusing on uh, human-centered augmentative AI technology applications such as healthcare, education, sustainability, manufacturing. These are all amazing. There are amazing opportunities here to really use this technology to the benefit of human workers, human consumers, and just individuals and and communities. So this is a view that is deeply humanist in the sense of yes it rejects i think what for many of us are kind of science fiction nightmares of 
you know, computers replacing humans, even kind of cyborgs, right? Some kind of integrated human computer, human machine circuitry that that paves over the human world with a, a world of, you know, perfectly rational computational machines. <laughs> At least that's, that's right. the nightmare I think of. Right. I mean, whether it's sci-fi or Hollywood, right. plenty of people. And, and uh, uh, so I don't want to be naive here. Like we said in the first principle, the, the shifting of jobs, the changes of culture will happen because of technological changes. Yes. And humanity yes. and civilization has seen this through over and over again. So AI will have that effect. But I think what's really important is we spend far more resource and, and and thoughts into creating the technology that can augment and collaborate with humans because there are many scenarios that we need machines to help us. For yes. example, um, disaster relief situations. Machines can get to places faster without the huh. consequences of, of danger for human yes. rescuers and can map out the situation faster. Um, in healthcare, which is what I have been, part of my research I've been doing for the past eight years, we see how Americans' clinicians are overworked, over-fatigued, and information right. o- overload. And this yes. is where machines can come to help because the bottom line is, and this is when I talk to so many doctors and nurses, the bottom line is we need to care for our patients. We yes. want all the help we can get to give us back the time and effort to do the human caring. Uh, so, yes. so that is the second principle is about promoting human-centered AI technology to augment humans. And the third funding principle is more foundational to the science. If we believe we can use machines to help humans to to assist, to, to collaborate, then today's AI technology is not sufficient. Today's AI technology, there's a lot of hype, but truthfully, this technology is still very narrow. It's very limited yes. in its ability. And at Stanford, we see this amazing convergence of two of the most interesting sciences coming out of 21st century. One is brain science and one is artificial intelligence. Right. So we are really promoting that interdisciplinary approach to combine the understanding of human neuroscience, human cognition, and human psychology into the next generation AI technology. So it can be more empathetic. It can be more contextually aware. It can be more multi-sensory. There are many dimensions that are missing in today's technology, and we have to get there so that our first two goals uh, can be realized. So would it be right to say that if the aim is to have AI that augments humans rather than replaces humans or displaces humans, then we need to understand more about uh, how humans actually function, human intelligence uh, and human capabilities, in order to mimic that with with machine with machines, is is that an accurate statement? Uh, almost, I think I agree with the the <laughs> first half of the statement, but All I right. <laughs> I 
I would say that this is a um, this is an open area of debate and and research. So personally, I don't think it's necessarily mimicking. It's again、mm-hmm. back to it could be understanding. And machines do what machines is best at, and humans do what humans are best best at. But there is a layer of understanding that can bridge、uh, humans and machines. There are also situations that machines can do better than humans, and we should、yes. promote those situations. For example, back to、um, healthcare, machines have compared to humans could potentially have way better memory, and. Bigger、yes. compute capacity to integrate data in a way humans cannot. Then we should promote that. We also, in the meantime, need machines to have enough sensitivity and understanding of a human situation that either recognize we are at the limit of the machines, or collaboratively remind the humans or 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 assist the humans to get the task done. And here I'm thinking about, for example, in a rescue situation, knowing. The condition of the human who needs to be rescued or helped is so important. Where the pain is, right? right? Yes. The emotional state,、um, the kind of、right. movements humans can do, the environment that can impact the humans. If if we want machines to help, they need to have the kind of inter- intelligence that could comprehend that situation. Aha!、Uh-huh. Yes, I, I. One of the things that interests me. The most about AI is that in figuring out what it is that machines can do best, it often requires、mm-hmm. us to ask, "What is it that they cannot do?" Or, or the flip side of、yeah. that is, "What are what is the essence of what makes us human?" Because it's not the、yes. ability to calculate. Right? I mean, that's、yeah. very important, but that is not unique to us. So it does require us to think about. What is it that that le- that really is something only humans can do, or humans can do far better than anything else? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and this is where you know I think the communication of today's AI is、uh, um, largely deficient. There is sometimes way too much hype about what this technology can do,、mm-hmm. and there's fear. Or there's sometimes underestimation or misrepresentation of what this technology is. Well, it does, of course,、uh, very quickly either fire the imagination、uh, in sort of positive directions or negative directions, or plug into fears. So, so I think it's probably hard、uh, to be accurate. So we are talking about resilience, and you have already identified one way. In which AI can make human society much more resilient in the face of disasters, and where if we can send in machines in many situations where we require search and rescue or other kinds of disaster relief, that can work better than sending in humans, and that then makes us more resilient, more able to recover from a disaster, and.、Uh, Thus, to rebuild. But I'd I'd be interested in other ways that AI can strengthen the resilience of our societies. You 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 mentioned that it can help, for instance, in sustainability. So, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. First of all, I think you're right. There are so many ways AI or or technology can help in general. I do want to. 
put a caveat on the disaster relief situation. Uh, we are talking about the future of AI. I don't want it uh, people to misunderstand that it's already happening because uh, we still have many steps and much work to do to to make that kind of AI assistant happen in a in a prevalent way for human disaster relief. So, in terms of uh, AI coming to help, say in sustainability, and I can also give other examples. A lot of、uh, today's effort in helping the environment, understanding the climate change, optimizing our energy usage, involve data and understanding the 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 patterns of data, understanding, you know, where our Our environment affected in both prevalent spatial way, but also in temporal longitudinal,、uh, longitudinal way. Here, AI can come helping in tremendous ways because machine learning computing is a great tool for model prediction, whether it's for climate or、uh, environmental data. I have a colleague here at.、Uh, Uh, Stanford, who uses、uh, a satellite imagery to help assess,、uh, say, crop information in regions, especially poor regions of the world, where it is very hard to put resource, especially human resource, on the ground to go collect this kind of data for for the region, and this kind of analytics that uses satellite imagery and machine learning technique. Is tremendously useful for policymakers.、Uh, so this is just one example. Another example is energy uses. Whether we're talking about a home, or a big building, or an entire city, we could go a long way in better optimizing and saving our energy if we know how to save electricity or. Have a smart way to modulate our temperatures,、uh, thermostat in our buildings, and many other ways. And again, this is where tools like machine learning optimization can play a big role. So that's just a couple of examples in the area of sustainability.、Um, there are many other、uh, examples of machines helping human. Actually, my own favorite topic these days, and also my research topic. Some of my research topic have to do with aging.、Uh, our world is、uh, is aging. A lot of societies, including our country, is gonna have an ex- a, a, a growing aging population. If used right and and smartly. The technologies we're developing, whether it's AI or robotics, can have a profound impact in、um, helping our elders to live better, work better, communicate better, and be more mobile, be more,、uh, be more independent. These are all possibilities. Whether we're talking about driver's assistance in in the self-driving car revolution, or healthcare improvements. Uh, in say early dementia detection or、uh, well-being management,、uh, to many other aspects, we can hope that machines can play a role in helping us. I love that. I certainly think often about aging and and the points at which people's lives change. Dramatically as they age, and one of them absolutely has traditionally been when 
you can no longer drive when the family takes the keys away or exactly you have some kind of accident. And so the idea that you can stay mobile and autonomously mobile as opposed to having to depend on someone else to drive you is is a tremendous mm-hmm. extension of agency and and the kind of autonomy that for that really defines the difference between being a child and an adult so that is a, a wonderful example yeah totally agree so you mentioned that ai can help with communication as people age but it can also help with communication across language lines. Uh, and one of the things that, that I think many people are already using rudimentary forms of AI is in translate programs that my children, when they travel, uh, count on being able to use their phones actually to help translate when they are talking to uh, someone from another country. And I, I, I wondered if you would talk about that. You came to the United States, I think, when you were 16 and so you obviously learned English and, and are fluent in English, but can you imagine translation applications? I guess, let me rephrase the question. How do you see them being used? They can't replace surely learning a language if you're going to live in another country, but they have they hold out the promise of communication in a way we've never been able to have for many, many millions more people. Absolutely. Well, first, let me say that I wish I had an AI to help me when I was learning English. English. <laughs> I was carrying, I, I was carrying a physical dictionary, almost my my size, <laughs> to learn that. Uh, time has really changed. In, indeed, I myself rely on uh, translation apps to to understand menus and 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 so on. So, absolutely, you're totally right, Emery. So there are many already. Uh, translation applications happening, you know, most of our apps or, or websites today, you know, whether it's Google or, or other websites, you already can get that button, translate this and, and, and hit that button. And suddenly a Spanish language document goes into English. You're right. They're not perfect. So mm-hmm. we as humans need to know how to use it and, and watch out for the pitfalls. But that uh, there's also, you know, video conference applications or products that can almost real-time translate uh, speaker uh, speeches from one language to the other. And this is just so helpful. In entertainment industry, there's a huge need in translating all sorts of programs from all sorts of back and forth from all sorts of languages. My own, of course, favorite example, again, is in medicine. Imagine a world that medical translation is, if not perfect, but seamless. And, uh, you know, patients, doctors around the world can exchange information and uh, experiences because of that availability of translation, it'll help so many patients and it'll also help advanced medicine because uh, we all know that the collective data or collective cases that we learn from around the world will help all of us. And this, this kind of example goes on in education, in, in law, in government uh, communication in just so many, and of course, business in so many cases. You're right. And I hadn't really thought about the medical 
implications, although it, it, it's also true even in, you know, in many cities around the world where doctors have patients that they can't communicate with unless uh, they have translators. And of course, in many of our schools, we have tens of languages uh, being spoken by children, immigrant children, who, who often simply are shut out from learning effectively because we don't have enough teachers who can be dual language. So in that sense, when you think about AI augmenting human capacity, it's, it's very direct because it will actually help human beings learn uh, and, and learn in multiple languages that I hadn't fully appreciated that, that use. Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about what makes AI systems themselves more resilient? Or maybe the first question should be, how do you even think about resilience when you're thinking about how to build uh, an AI system uh, as effectively as possible? Yeah, great question, Anne-Marie. I think uh, I'll answer it in two layers. The more standard technical answer uh, would definitely talk about resilience and robustness of computing, right? There are some standard dimensions that the, the field of computer science uh, have studied for, for decades from uh, security, from uh, robustness, and from privacy and all these point of view. And we can probably not on this this uh, conversation, we can get into the technical details. But I think on a meta level, what is very important and what is we are advocating is to recognize what is the value for, for machines, AI. You know, resilience is one of them. And my thesis, and uh, to give credit to a uh, technology ethicist, Shannon Vailer, has shared with us that there's no independent machine values. Machine values are human values. So when we think about the important value of resilience in AI system, we, from the design of that AI system to the development, to the deployment, we should think about what resilience means to the humans who will be impacted, who will be using this AI system. So once we think from this point of view, a lot of things start to come into the picture. We want a robust system. We want a fair system. We want it to be truthful. We want it to respect privacy. And, and the list would go on to reflect what our human community and human society cares in this um, in in this uh, definition of resilience. That is uh, fascinating and, and it helps. It helps us think through the difference between resilience and robustness. And one of the things we've been exploring throughout this series is that resilience does not just mean capacity to withstand external forces, to persist uh, in the face of uh, negative forces, which I think many people think of resilience as a synonym for endurance, but actually it is, it's more than that. It's a, a capacity to adapt to change. It's a, often a capacity even to improve, uh, and in the face of challenges in, in various ways. And so. And also. Go ahead. Uh, sorry. I, I would add that resilience is also insistence on the inner value. 
that whether there is external uh, factors or not, the persistence and insistence on that value is part of that resilience. I like that. I like that. I I, I agree with that. Uh, that may be something you see specifically because you think about human values uh, and and machine capabilities uh, together. So the the question of persisting with the value that effectively we have to design into the technology is a part of resilience. But one of the other things we we think about often is the ways in which diversity contributes to resilience. So the most obvious way is that if you have a, say, a business and you have a board that is more diverse, that reflects people of many different types who have many different life experiences, their collective judgment will be better than uh, a much more homogeneous board. And we have plenty of research uh, to show that. It's also common sense that you'll have people who can bring different factors to the table because of their difference perspectives and and differences in life experiences. One of the problems, of course, uh, with AI is that it reflects the biases often of those who are designing it. And I know this is something you have spent a lot of time thinking about and have founded an organization called AI for All. And I'd love you to talk about how we build diversity into AI or, or the flip side, how do we counter the biases that that are often uh, there. Yeah, thank you for um, talking about this. Uh, I can't agree more with everything you've said. So the origin of AI for All is uh, very much connected around the same time I was thinking about the human-centered AI approach. And uh, it started with the recognition that, oh my God, this technology, after so many decades of niche laboratory work, is finally taking off and it's going to impact human lives and human society. So around 2014, I I thought I was living in a very interesting time where there are two kind of crises that's simultaneously happening around AI. One of the crises is this media talk about Terminators coming next door. And we have very prominent people stoking that fear and um, talking about the doom of humanity because of AI. And then I was living a daily life of a different crisis, which is the total lack of diversity and inclusion in the field of AI. I was for a long time the only woman faculty in Stanford's AI lab. I happened to be the director of that lab for five years, but I was the only woman faculty. We go to a any AI conference. There is a number of very prominent AI conferences. The technical women population are at best 10%. And in companies that are advancing this technology rapidly, you just don't see women in any rank, especially in leadership rank. So this was really concerning me because um, I really started to draw that line between these two dots. If we truly are worried about terminators, or put it in a more positive way, if we want AI to be more like Baymax, the the, the, the nice robot Disney showed us, <laughs> rather than terminators, 
we really need to think about the creators of AI because it's the creators that would be imposing the values or, or at least play a huge role in imposing the value and de- and designing and developing this technology. This connects me to the real crisis that I was thinking about is the utter lack of diversity. And I only talk about women as an example, but it's even way worse when it comes to underrepresented racial minority and, and other aspects of, uh, of uh, human inclusion and, and diversity. So long story short, because of that moment and the realization, I also was very, very lucky that at that time, my former PhD, at that time is my PhD student, uh, Olga Rusakovsky, who is now a uh, Princeton University assistant professor in, in the area of AI and computer science, was also thinking exactly the same thing. She was very passionate and committed to bringing more diversity into the field of AI. So Olga and I immediately hit off this idea and decided we need to start uh, a high school student program at Stanford to invite more high school young women to get exposed to the field of AI, the technology of AI, and also, very importantly, the human-centered application and use cases of AI through research projects. So we started a pilot summer camp at Stanford in 2015 for two weeks for just two dozen high school students to come and join AI Lab and learn about AI and do research. It was so successful that by 2016, we had hundreds and hundreds of applications at Stanford applying for these 24 slots. And we know that this needs to be scaled up because the demand is huge and we want this to reach all of America eventually, not just the Bay Area. So early 2017, we became a national nonprofit organization called AI for All, co-founded by Olga Rusakovsky, me, and Dr. Rick Sommer, from also a long-term uh, STEM educator at Stanford. And then by 2019, this summer, we have 11 uh, summer camps throughout this country, plus one at, in Canada. And we, our students group come from racial minority, rural regions, low-income family, and women. And they, frankly, they even come from all over the world, even though we're focusing on American programs right now. That is terrific. And it, it shows that th- there is plenty of the talent that many of our most advanced tech companies say they so desperately need, uh, it's often right under their noses, but it doesn't look like what they expect talent to look like. Uh, so they, you know, obviously they, they perpetuate often themselves. It's a, it's, it's partly human nature to hire yourself because <laughs> you, 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 you much more easily recognize talent where you've already seen it, but it's extraordinary that you've scaled so fast and you imagine a world of AI, the the companies that are using it, the place, the academic institutions that really does include people from all over the place. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, it's not only imagined, it's already happening. <laughs> um, so I told you earlier, quite a few years ago, I was the only woman faculty at Stanford AI Lab. Now we have five women faculty in a lab of about uh, 20 faculty. So, so it's not the eventual goal, but we've made huge progress. And also, if you look at the students and alums of AI for All and what they're doing, it's just phenomenal. These young students coming from all kinds of backgrounds. We had one student who grew up in an agriculture community in a strawberry field in a in a trailer home with a single mother from Mexico. And she attended our AI for all program and then went back to the community to her community and used machine learning and data science uh, uh, tools to analyze water quality for her community. We have students uh, from uh, African American community attending our uh, Princeton chapter, visiting Washington D.C. and start to connect AI technology and policy making issues uh, with their local congressmen and women. So we are starting to see oh, we have one young woman who is using AI to do creative arts and have uh, have formed a, a community around her to show how AI can help human expression. So we are seeing this incredible creativity and talent from all over the, the map and literally and and figuratively to change this field. So I'm very confident that, you know, throughout programs like AI for All and collective efforts, we'll see a different future. Well, and a brighter future. I, I must say, when we think about what those systems are going to look like, if they're going to augment human capabilities, then all different kinds of humans certainly have to be involved in designing them and, and thinking through uh, where the, where they can best serve us. We have time for one more question. And I, I want to ask you, I think, about a subject that for many people reflects a fear of AI, uh, which is about the future of work. And I know you are serving on Governor Gavin Newsom's Future of Work Commission for the state of California, and you all are charged with thinking about the future of work and making predictions and recommendations. And many people really do hear that machines will replace them in their jobs. Uh, Other people talk about how machine learning can augment those jobs. Uh, I'd love for you to tell us how you think about that question. Yes, uh, Emery, I think this is an important topic. As we talked earlier, even though we are committed to create the technology that augment humans, we cannot pretend that today's jobs will not change. And that would have a profound human impact on our labor market. I think there's a McKinsey report a couple of years ago already saying that even if we freeze all tech technology advances today, 50% of the tasks on various jobs can potentially be automated by just existing technology. So so the impact is going to be profound. Keep in mind, we're talking about tasks, not, not jobs. So typically a job involves many 
different tasks. So in terms of my role in a governor, governor Newsom's、uh, Future of Work Commission, it's、uh, quite an honor to be on it. We have a, a commission of many experts from California. It's it's a learning process for me to be on the same commission with labor union leaders, with business ex- executives, with、uh, government representatives. We're still early in this year-long process. We we are you you participated in the second of our eleven listening tours, and、uh, your your speech was.、Uh, Extremely inspiring and informative, and it's it's incredible to pulling this multi-dimensional thinking and voices into this issue, onto this issue of future of work. And I think it's, it, frankly, I believe this is the right approach. This is a very complex issue. We should look at it from technology side, how it's impacting tasks, how is.、Uh, Uh, potentially replacing labor. How is it、uh, monitoring labor? We should also look at it,、uh, and how is it con-、uh, impacting consumer who is at the receiving end of people's work? But we also are looking at it from policy point of view, from economics、uh, policy, from ethical legal policy, from you know. Incentives、uh, from government. We're also looking at it from education point of view, right? More and more, we recognize there's a need to continue to learn, to reskill. This is also part of human resilience. That how do we, throughout our lifetime, participate in continual learning and reskilling as technology moves the nature of job in a different or dynamic way? So. I believe this should be a multi-dimensional, multi-disciplinary approach. Again, I believe that、uh, technology plays a huge role, but technology should be embedded in the greater context and greater talk of the the societal efforts. In tackling the issue of future of work. Well, that sounds like just the right note on which to end. I I like very much、uh, the vision again of a technology that is embedded in a human value system, in human systems generally, economic systems, social systems,、uh, in ways that help us both in in concrete. Tasks that we need to carry out,、uh, but also in our health, our well-being, our education, and frankly, the quality of our jobs. Because as much as people do not want to lose their sources of income, many people are actually working in jobs that could be. Far more interesting and tap much more、uh, of what they can bring to those jobs、uh, as multi-dimensional humans. So we are grateful、uh, to have had the chance to hear about human-centered AI and AI for all, and we thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you, Emery, and thank you for all your leadership and work、uh, for for bettering our society. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews.